It's the Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest. He is one of the world's greatest songwriters. Just happens to be in uh, one of my favorite all-time bands, Squeeze. And Squeeze comes with the Chicago Theater on August 31st. And uh, so excited to talk to Glenn Tilbrook. Good morning. Hey, how are you? I appreciate you calling in today, Glenn. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm in tip-top form, and I'm so excited to uh, be starting a tour. With Squeeze, you know, it's great. What a great place to be. So let me get one gushing fan moment out of the way that uh, that your music has meant so much to me. And one of the first records I bought with my own money was uh, was singles, 45s and under. I saved up for two weeks to get it because, you know, it was a lot of money uh, for a 12-year-old. Oh, but uh, worth every cent, I still have that vinyl. Oh, that's so sweet. That's lovely. Thank you. About to start the... Uh, the U.S. leg of your tour, and this is cool. I just read uh, you guys are going to incorporate uh, some uh, some LP tracks, some deep cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been you know we've been rehearsing a lot in London, and um, Chris and I first of all made an individual list of songs that we thought we might like to do, and then we got together and honed that list down. And you know, between us, we came up with some pretty interesting selections, as well as the songs that people know and would from Squeeze. We've got some really deep cuts uh, going throughout our career, actually. Um, and uh, the band sounds so fresh, and it's so great to go back to songs that we haven't played since they came out and just see what we can do with them now. Are there some songs that, uh, you know, you write and record, that's it, they just kind of exist on an album, but then you sort of move on, you don't really get a chance to, to play it after that? Yeah, you know, there's a song on the Different and Tilbrook album called Love's Crashing Waves, and I don't think we've done that song since since it came out. And, and we've rehearsed that with the band, and it sounds so fresh. It sounds like it could have been done yesterday, you know. It sounds really contemporary, and we're all really pleased with that. You know, we've, we, we, we've put a lot of work in, and really, you know, the template for Squeeze when we got back together in 2007 was how, how much care... Brian Wilson and his band put into what they do, and I thought, you know, if they can do that, so could Squeeze. And we have, you know, it's all about the detail now, and technology's moved on, and the synths have moved on, and what you can do with sound has moved on so much. It's such a immersive experience now. So we're doing that. We've got films, you know, got movies up to go with some of the songs, and our lights are fantastic. You know, the whole thing is a presentation now. Well, and I'm, you know, one of those uh, weirdos who still listens to full albums. And, you know, you'll rarely go and see a band and hear like a, a, a non-single. Uh, but, uh, you know, you and Chris, they're just, they're, there's so many gems. I can't wait to hear these. You know, it's re- it's really exciting. And, uh, of course, this will be the uh, second time I've been on tour. Uh, in Ch- it may Actually, may, maybe it's even the third time I've had my birthday. Uh, the, that night is my birthday. I'll be 62. Oh, nice. So, uh, you can come and sing happy birthday to me if you like. <laughs> I was just, you know, and uh, re- realizing that, uh, well, my wife asked, you know, what was the first time you saw Squeeze? And I think back and it's like, oh, my gosh, it was 29 years ago. And uh, Yeah. It's such a long time, you know, just thinking about when, when, we, when we first toured America um, in 1978. 
you know, you guys still had those big cars. <laughs> I'm so glad I got to see that before they disappeared, <laughs> you know. They were massive, massive cars, and I was so excited. It was such a... It was such a magical time to come over here when I was 20 and just go, wow, this is amazing. Let me ask you about my, my favorite song, Up the Junction. And j- just writing that, I, I would have been so in awe of those lyrics, I wouldn't know what to do. And then you write the most gorgeous melody to go with it. I, I think that's, uh, boy, this is turning into just flattery. But uh, for me, that's a perfect song. You know, I, I'm very proud of, of that song. Um, when I got the lyric, I thought, wow, that is so great. You know, a whole story. Um, my job was to convey the story. And, um, you know, uh, Chris wrote that lyric. I believe we were uh, on our first tour in, in America on that same tour in 1978. And we, were, we had played uh, New Orleans, a club outside New Orleans called Old Man Rivers. And we had a day off, and we were in on, in one of those motels that's on a on an interstate, nothing around it. We had no money, yeah, and we couldn't get anywhere, so we were sort of stuck and maybe feeling a bit homesick. And so Chris wrote this wonderful London vignette called "Up the Junction" in you know in Louisiana. How weird is that? <laughs> That is a fantastic story. So I'm going to tell you that in that uh, one of our huge cars somehow uh, inspired that song. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and when I when I got the lyric, I thought this is amazing. You know, and uh, it was dead easy to write actually. Just tumbled out. So uh, songs don't often happen that way, and when it when it does, it's always a gift. Do you know when you have a winner like that, when you're working on a song, that you have something special? Or in a way, are they all, you know, sort of your babies and, and you treat them equally? You know, um, I think most of the time you know. And um, that's not that the outcome will be what, what you think it will be. Sometimes, you know, I was convinced that Tempted was a massive hit and it wasn't. But it sort of is now. You know, in the, in, in the test of time, you know, it stood up. Um, and I think that most times you get you get a buzz about that, but uh, but also the other thing is about like tempted is that we recorded a version of it um, that, with me singing that sounded more like ELO, and, uh, oh. and it, it, so so we knew by the end of that, that the song was great, but maybe the version wasn't. So we did it again, and then Paul Carrick sang it. I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is it. I'm very curious to hear if it sounded like ELO. So is it like just huge production on that or just uh, the way you uh, sang it, it? It's not as big as ELO, but it was certainly more poppy. Um, it's out there somewhere. There's, uh, I'm sure it's there on Spotify on one of the compilations or something like that. You know, it's it's out there. I know that. I know it's been released. But, you know, you'll, you'll play that once, and I don't think you'd ever play it again. <laughs> Talking about touring uh, in America and different songs, so you have to come up with a different set list for a U.S. tour versus U.K. or Europe because some songs, uh, I'm, I'm sure, are more popular in one country than another. Yeah. Uh, so if I didn't love you was more of a, a radio hit here than it was in the U.K. So we generally don't do that uh, in the U.K. and and here people would not let us get away with not playing it. I think so. That's definitely one. But generally, you know, our, generally our sets translate pretty well country to country. You know, on this 
tour will be going as well as here. We'll be playing the UK. We'll be going to Australia and Japan. And the set will evolve, undoubtedly, but basically it will be the same. How much rehearsal do you need now before a tour? Maybe a little more because you're playing deeper cuts, but for, for some of the songs you played so many times, is it is it almost muscle memory for the guitar? <laughs> yes, it is, but you've got to be careful with it that you don't start thinking that you know exactly how it goes. You know, Sometimes when we're doing older songs, I have to stop and say, you know what, that sounds a bit tired. What's going on here? You, know, you have to pull it apart and put it back together again. It's like retuning an engine. Okay, we've gotten lazy or we've gotten bad habits. Let's pull it back. Is it as much just trying to keep it fresh for you because you want to keep that interesting, but uh, you also want to play the songs that, uh, you know, that people want to hear them kind of the way they know them? Totally, totally. And and uh, I think the thing is, you get what you get back from the audience when you play those songs is, you know, is a, is a tremendous buzz. And so you've got to keep... You know, you have, we have to work hard to keep the buzz coming from the stage as well with those songs. And then what you get back is the extra juice that you need to make it great. And then when you go with deeper cuts, you know, people people listen and are intrigued. And we've put a lot of work into those too. It's the work that you put in that you get out when you play live. And Squeeze visits the Chicago Theater on August 31st. Go and sing a happy birthday to Glenn. My guest, of course, has been Glenn Tilbrook. Um, it has been an honor to have you on the show, and thank you so much for calling in today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. My next guest is a Grammy-nominated artist who has sold more than 60 million records as the lead vocalist of Simply Red. Their 12th album, Blue-Eyed Soul, is coming out on November 8th, and uh, we're going to chat with Mick Hucknall, and welcome to the show. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How are you today? Excellent, thanks, and uh, big hello to all your listeners out there. Well, I appreciate you calling in today, and uh, I want to talk about uh, the new album, Blue-Eyed Soul. This is your second album since reuniting the band back in 2015. When you got back together, was it difficult for you to recapture that groove, or did things just kind of fall into place? Well, it wasn't difficult at all, so it was actually a great pleasure. I love my job, I love creating music, and I love performing with this great bunch of musicians that I've gathered over the years. And then you have all originals on this album. You composed uh, all ten songs. When you have... Uh, the material, are you going into the studio with all the songs completed? Are you ever writing it all in the studio, sort of shape-shifting some of them in there? Well, we shape, it's a good question, we shape-shift them a little bit, but what I did, I paid great attention to detail on this record. Uh, I am a blue-eyed soul artist, and I tried to do what it says on the tin, you know, so the record is full of soul, R&B, and funk. I had two aims. I wanted to push my voice a little harder, and I wanted to do stuff, material that I thought the band would enjoy playing night after night when we're on the road. So then when you're heading into recording something like this, do you do you begin, oh, I, I have a concept, it's Blue-Eyed Soul, I want to write songs like that, or are you working songs as they come to you and like, yeah, you know what, this would kind of fit uh, this sort of theme of a, of a Blue-Eyed Soul record? Well, no, I, I actually did what you said in the beginning there. I, I really focused... On, uh, I was really paying attention to detail on this record. Um, uh, a friend of mine, an Irish friend of mine, a singer, 
He said to me, I, we were a little bit drunk one night, and he said to me, <laughs> I'm sure you're a great soul singer. And it just stuck with me. I thought, well, that, that's how people see me, you know, so I should really work on the material that fits within that genre. And that's what you get on this record. Where did you record uh, Blue-Eyed Soul? Are you recording at home now? Or are you still going into studios? I know the whole industry has changed. Well, we because we recorded in the old-fashioned way, which was like uh, like they made records in the 60s and early 70s with, with takes, I wanted to go into a studio that had a great live room. And uh, Mark Knopfler's studio in Chiswick in West London is oh, okay. such a room. It's a fantastic place to make a live recording. I, I know the Rolling Stones made their uh, Grammy-winning blues album in the same studio. And uh, my band are such that they can play really well live. So what I did was I had all the arrangements uh, conceived before I went into the studio, and that enabled me to just instruct the musicians roughly where to start, and then we just worked it through and did a series of takes and then chose the best takes. You know, the old-fashioned way sometimes is the best. Well, it seems like that would be more enjoyable than, you know, you can do it digitally and you can do click track and, and bit by bit. But is the, the temptation, I think, would be you would just, you'd overwork the song. You'd, you'd never feel like it was done. Possibly, yeah. But, but when you've got these arrangements, it's just so much more solid. And also, we've got such a great relationship. You know, I've been working with the same guys for many, many years. And uh, we almost have a kind of telepathy. Uh, with with what we do, you know, it's uh, it's such a great joy to be surrounded by a bunch of really talented and uh, um, amiable musicians. They all get along with each other. We all get along, and uh, we really love what we do. And not that you couldn't get you know a great record by people you know individually tracking your parts, but I just feel as a listener, and uh, you can just tell when the band is in it when they're playing together. I you know you it's not tangible, but you can just feel it. I agree. Yeah, it's it's true. It's there, there's just a synergy you get from uh, from a great band, you know. And they they're a great bunch of guys as well. We get along very well, and uh, it just uh, it's just something that just makes me realize how much I love my job and uh, how much I love what I do. When you're recording with that group then and playing it live, are you are you taking the same uh, the same band on the road? Are you trying to recapture that feeling, or are you trying to to adapt it more for for a live setting? Well, actually, you know, we don't even have to try. We, we, what we sound like on record is what we sound like live. It's just, uh, I think that's what musicians can do when, they're, when they've been playing together for a while. And, and uh, it's such an honor to work with such talented guys. It's got to be kind of magical when you're playing together and you know each other well enough that someone could take a song in a slightly different direction and you all know instinctively how to follow that. That's just got to be a thrill. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, that's the potential of what you do when you're performing live. You, you can, but also when I pl- perform live as well, I want to give people what they want. So we're not the kind of band that just goes out and says, okay, we're going to do an hour show and play our latest album. Uh, when I go out on the road, I play all of our hits, and uh, I want to make sure I respect the fact that people, if, if they spend their hard-earned money buying a ticket from you, then you want to give them what they want. When you are performing songs that uh, that you've written, your originals, do you are they more personal personal to you when you're performing them? Does it feel at a certain point, well, I, I've written this, but everyone loves this song. This kind of belongs more to more to the listeners than they do to me at this point. <laughs> That's a great question. The truth is, um, 
I get immense pleasure out of pleasing an audience. You know, as I just said to you, they, yeah. they spend their hard-earned money to come to a show. So I want to give them what they want. And uh, every night you think, oh, that would be so boring playing the same song every night. But remember, every night is a different audience and a different kind of atmosphere and a different sort of inspiration. Now, I saw several uh, tour dates for 2020 on your website, but uh, but no U.S. shows. Are there any chance of uh, seeing you guys over here? That really depends on the level of success that we achieve with the record. Yeah. You know, it's, it goes hand in hand. Uh, if this record goes in America, then I very much hope to perform here. Does it make sense anymore that bands could be huge in one country and just have, you know, sort of a cult following in others? What, was the Internet supposed to equalize everything? Shouldn't everyone be, you know, big everywhere? You're full of great questions today, so I've got to say that is a fantastic question because you'd think that things would change. I mean, I remember growing up, especially when I first came to America, and realizing that there were some bands here that were huge in America but couldn't get arrested in Europe and vice versa. Uh, I don't know, really don't know how much that's changed, but why your question is so good is that you would think that now we have these kind of uh, modern media, things like YouTube and Spotify, that it would become much more generic, and maybe that's the case. I don't really know. What do you think? I think it's just so much easier for people to access content that you're not waiting for. You know, if you're back in the day, if your local radio station didn't play that song, you were never going to hear it. And now people just have more ways to access media. So I think bands from different areas can achieve success, uh, you know, more broadly than they could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the case with us because we've had over a billion hits, a billion hits on YouTube on various uh, songs when you add them all up. So that's a, a great sign for us of our worldwide popularity. And uh, the brand new album from Simply Red, it is Blue-Eyed Soul. It's coming out uh, November 8th. My guest, of course, is uh, lead vocalist Mick Hucknall. And uh, it was a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for joining our show today. Well, thank you for being so well-researched. I appreciate your questions. It's the Big Wake Up Call on AM 1280 WBIG. I'm Ryan Gatenby. Welcome back, and it is time for my next guest who just wrote and performed some all-time classics, part of uh, the soundtrack of my life. Things can only get better. No one is to blame. What is love? Got a brand new record out called Transform, and he's uh, on a U.S. tour, which brings him to Chicago on June 20th at the House of Blues, and it is a pleasure to chat with Howard Jones. Good morning. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? I am doing well, and, and, and thank you so much for calling in today. How are you? Yes, yes, I'm good, thanks. Very good. I just want to get one gushing uh, fan moment out of the way, but um, you were the second concert I ever saw. I don't know if you remember Poplar Creek was an outdoor theater near Chicago, but... Uh, yes, I do, I do. Was uh, was you and the Arrhythmics on tour, and, and, and just a fabulous show. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was really fun. That was great. I, 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 th- I only did like a few shows with them, and it was um, it was brilliant fun. But I want to talk about uh, the new record, Transform, which we've been uh, checking out. Now, I know it's been a few years since your last record. What was, what was your inspiration to, uh, to put on a new one? Well, um, I was asked to write a couple of songs for a, for a film called Eddie the Eagle, um, which was set in the 80s. And so it needed to have that flavor, but be a, you know, a, a couple of contemporary songs. So I thought that could be you know, the, the basis of, um, 
of making a whole album. And, I, you know, that's how it started, really. And then, you know, it takes me a while to get all this stuff together. But, um, but you know, Transform gradually got there. Well, and I think it has the potential to reach a new generation. I mean, I have teenage kids, and I don't know whether it's just waves of nostalgia, but kids right now, like uh, Stranger Things on Netflix, they're so interested in the 80s and think I had the most wonderful life because I grew up in the 80s. Oh, right. Oh, well, yeah, well, that, that's, that's so cool because, I mean, because musically, you know, the 80s did get a bit of a bad rap for a while, but um, now it seems to be all the rage again, which is, which is really cool. So how is recording an album in 2019? How, how much other than technology? Is, is it different from recording an album in like 1983, 84? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, in those days back, you know, obviously I was with a major, major record label. Yeah. You know, and I went into a big, you know, fancy studio with a huge desk. And now, um, you know, I find myself, you know, I have a studio at home with, with my you know, Apple iMac and, you know, lots of great software and my, and my pianos and synths and stuff. So I'm able to work at home and spend, you know, that precious time really crafting the sounds and really crafting the songs. So, you know, without the pressure of, you know, this huge sort of studio bill um, being, being racked up. So, so I think that, um, you know, that's, a, you know, a big change. Um, and know technology has really developed, you know, since the early 80s and it's good to use it. It's interesting because you know, it wasn't that long ago you'd hear someone, I have a home studio, and you're thinking of a, a cassette multitrack, and now people are recording you know, full albums on, yeah. on their MacBook in Logic. Yes, that, that, that's right. I mean, that's one of the things that I think, because people can um, you know, do so much on, on their own on, the, on, on their laptop, that you know, if you're making you know, a record like you know, I've just done, you have to really go the extra mile with experimentation and, you know, you know, crafting the, the, the sound so that it, it's not just like you could, you know, get out of garage band or something at home. Right. Um, but I'm, I think it's really cool, though, that people, people can make music on their laptop and, and enjoy that and enjoy the creative process. I always predicted that would happen back in um, 1983, and it has now. So when you're touring today and, and performing your best-known songs, are you able to recreate the sounds from a specific uh, synthesizer used on that song? Can you reproduce that on uh, just from, from your laptop? Uh, yes, yes, actually, yeah, you can. Um, but also we go back and we sample um, sounds from, from the original multitracks because sometimes they'll be very complex, layered sounds. So we, we'll, we'll sample that, and then we can you know, work with it in the... Um, the laptop. So it's, yeah, I mean, the technology is so much more reliable and powerful now. Um, but, you know, still, um, you know, it's, technology doesn't make records, it's human beings yeah. who come up with the ideas and, and it's the tunes and the chord changes. That's still where most of my work goes in, you know, and the crafting of the, of the, of the actual songwriting. And, um, and I just, you know, I'm a bit of a synth nerd as well. I just <laughs> love all that stuff. But, but, at the, but the, the thing I'm most passionate about song and what it's saying and you know tunes the chords everything like that well and and that's interesting because you mentioned people saying sometimes the 80s music got a bad rap and i got heard oh you know that's a that's a synthesizer band they push a button and they have a song i'm like do, do you listen to it do you hear the lyrics do you hear the melody this is an incredible song no matter how it's arranged yeah yeah that's right i mean i i do you know i think that um you know popular music popular culture rock and roll should be about you know Taking risks and doing new things, and not you know not not becoming stuck in your stuck in the old ways. You know, I always think of you know computers, synthesizers, 
drum machines, they are instruments um, that, that can be played really badly. You know, if you don't put the work in or the sure. thinking in. And it's like somebody going to the piano, you know, you know, somebody can sit at the piano and like, make you just want to cringe because it's so awful. And then another person sits down and makes you want to cry because it's so beautiful. And it's exactly the same with, with, with you know, electronic instruments. It's about the, that human input on, on the end that, that's, that's making it work. It is about the human input, and it is an artist, and you creating a, a sonic palette that was that was innovative and sounded good. And it's not like you're you're walking up and uh, you know I got so tired of the electric piano sound from the DX7 that became that was on every song in the late yeah. '80s. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. It, it just gets you know. I mean, I mean, we should all as artists, we should always be searching for new sounds and new ways of doing things because that's what's exciting for people to hear. You know, something that's sort of familiar but different, you know, and I think always that's our job. Artists should always be striving for that. You know, don't sound like somebody else. Sound like you. And then uh, you're coming to the House of Blues on uh, June 20th, just uh, in a week or so. What kind of show are we going to see there? Um, well, it's um, it's an electronic show for me. Um, you know, I have two, two keyboard setups. That's me and, and, and Robbie. And then my guitarist, Robin, who... Um, it, it always plays with me, and then I've got a, an acoustic piano there as well. Um, and then Men Without Hats are on before me; they're amazing. Oh, great! Um, All Hail the Silence um, is BT's band, and, and BT collaborated with me on three tracks on the new album. And so he's bringing his band out, and they're amazing, and they're kind of sort of in that sort of Stranger Things sort of you know synth wave yeah. um, movement. And yeah, so uh, you know I've been able to create this this tour myself, which I'm very grateful for, and, and it's a really very happy um, bunch of people. So no Keith Emerson like giant uh, barrage of uh, keyboards on stage. No, well there's, there, there there are quite a lot of keyboards on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so so it is a bit of a synth fest. Yeah, so um, yeah, yeah, plenty plenty of keyboards. Uh, June 20th, House of Blues, and the brand new record is uh, Transform. The artist is my guest, uh, Howard Jones, and uh, it has been an honor, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really, really great talking with you. <laughs>